Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. It's good to see everyone out. The lesson you're about to hear today is probably not going to be like most sermons uh, you would hear on, at an Easter service being held at, at many churches around us uh, today. Uh, and I feel like it might be helpful to at least acknowledge and explain that uh, before we get started. I am very thankful that, that many people take the time uh, around this time of year to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. I think that is a good thing. Uh, many people that maybe many other times throughout the year don't focus on their relationship with the Lord take this time to, to actually go to church, to hear some portion of Scripture read, and to think about God's gift of salvation through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Um, but I, I hope most of us here recognize that the formal celebration of Easter as a religious holiday uh, on an annual basis is not something that we see within the Scriptures. Um, it's no more biblical than, than Thanksgiving or, or Mother's Day or Father's Day, which are all, all good things. Uh, and if we want to pick any day out of the year to focus on Jesus' birth, Jesus' resurrection, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, and so I may, from time to time, around the end of November, preach on giving thanks. I may, in December, preach on uh, Jesus' birth. And, and we may, around this time of year, preach on the resurrection. In fact, I, I seriously considered doing that, and I hope in, in coming Sundays too do that, because uh, I believe it's, it's a very central part of the gospel. Uh, but today I've decided since we were uh, studying Malachi uh, and we hadn't finished yet that I was going to go ahead and, and finish that. But I want us to recognize as well when we talk about the Lord's Day, we just recently studied Revelation 1 where that phrase is used. Um, the first day of the week is in many ways a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. And we, as we just did a moment ago, remembered the death of Jesus. And so every week, not, not once a year, but every week, uh, we, we need to, to give the proper emphasis to that. And I hope, I hope we do that here. But if you want to open your Bibles up to Malachi chapter 2, we're going to continue our, our study through this book today. Thus far, we've summarized God's message to his rebellious child in Malachi under four main headings. In verse 1 through 5 of chapter 1, God says, I have loved you. In verses 6 through 14, his main message is, where is my respect? Where is my reverence? In chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, uh, his main message is, things don't have to be this way. And in the, the last section that we study in verse 10 through 16, the message is, you're tearing the family apart. And so while God has shown Israel great love and mercy, they have only shown him irreverence and disdain. While God has offered them a hope of a better future with him, they have persisted in violating the family values and continuing to do damage to the loving home that God has given to them. And throughout all of this, in classic teenage rebellion style, Israel has continued to talk back against God. And they have truly wearied him with their words. That's the first phrase we see here in chapter 2, verse 17. And yet, they say, how have we wearied you? They're going to continue to talk back as we go into chapter 3 and chapter 4. But now the main question that remains is, what is God going to do about all of this? And that's God's message throughout the last part of the book of Malachi. 
At the beginning of chapter 3, I think the main message that we see from God is, I am going to clean up this mess. As we already made reference to here in chapter 2, verse 17, we see what Israel's attitude is about all of this rebuke. They say, well, how have we wearied you? What, what have we done wrong? You've got to think, they must not have been listening to the rest of the, the book so far. God has made it very clear what they had done wrong to, to weary him. And yet, they've toned all of that out. And instead, they're saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And that he delights in them. They also say, where is the God of justice? Their, their response is basically, what's, what's the matter? What, what is it that we have done? God seems to be approving of all this. We don't see any fire coming down from heaven. We don't see any plague being sent up uh, against us. The, the wicked are, seem to be prospering. God must approve. And yet, God answers that question, where is the God of justice? In chapter 3, his answer is the God of justice is coming. God basically says, make no mistake, the God of justice is getting ready to, to come, but you better make sure you're ready for me, because I'm not going to be judging by your standards. And unless you change, it's not going to be the joyous reunion you're hoping for. There in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we read, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Who can endure his coming? This coming is in many ways going to be a coming of judgment against the children of Israel. When is it that this is fulfilled? Well, we understand, we look in verse 1 here, and this is referred to throughout the synoptic gospels to refer to John the Baptist, who came as a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. But then it also says there in verse 1, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. When was that fulfilled? Well, we read throughout the Gospels there are times at a young age that Jesus came to the temple, but that doesn't necessarily seem to fit with the, the type of coming that is referred to here. Here his coming is going to be as a refiner's fire, as a fuller's soap. When did Jesus come in that way? Well, I think to some extent we might see a partial fulfillment of this in John 2 when Jesus comes to cleanse his house, to cleanse the temple. And do you remember what Jesus did in John 2? He sees the ones who are doing business here, changing out different forms of money, selling animals within the court of the temple. And it says in John 2 verse 15 and 16, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Here we see Jesus cleansing his people. Try to imagine this for a moment, the, the, the Lord coming back to his house, if you will. Imagine that you went on a trip somewhere and you came back home and somebody had broken into your home and they were running a community daycare out of it. 
How, how would you react? Or, or imagine that they had broken into your home and they're using it as a headquarters for some catering business. And you, you come home, you walk into the door, and all of a sudden, you're confronted by this. How would you react? You'd say, what in the world is going on here? This is my house. This isn't what my house is supposed to be used for. That's Jesus' reaction here. You've taken my father's house and you've made it into a place of business. You've corrupted it. And Jesus comes in with great vigor, with great zeal, driving out all of this immorality, all of this corruption. Here we see him taking the whip and, and, and driving that. We see him turning over tables, pouring out coins. This is Jesus coming as a, a refiner's fire and as a fuller's soap. What, what is that imagery of a refiner's fire? I, I just recently watched some videos uh, about how they, they refine gold and silver and precious metals. And Jesus here is, is not going to beat around the bush. He's not pulling any punches. He is stoking the fire up to metal melting heat to burn away every impurity. When, when they uh, purify, when they smelt metals, they have to get the, uh, the metal up to a, a temperature of 1,600 um, to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit to melt metal. I, I watched one video where a man put a, a metal spoon in, uh, a silver spoon, within a matter of seconds, it just sunk right in to this glowing metal. It, it, it's almost like you have a little bucket of, of sunshine. It's so bright and, and so fiery. And that is our picture here of Jesus cleansing his people, refining his people. He also has this picture of a fuller's soap, ancient fullers or, or uh, people who specialized in, in cleaning fabrics would use harsh soaps to, to whiten the, the fabrics and they would often beat or tread the cloth in the, the water. Uh, and that, that's our picture here. Have you ever had a, a grass stain or some type of, of stain that you were trying to get out and it wouldn't come out? What, what, what do you do? Well, you, you start scrubbing it like this, right? And try to get it out. Well, that, that's what Jesus is doing here with his people. Great vigor, great strength, great power, uh, intending to get out this stain, get out this blot, to burn off all impurity, all corruption from his people. Here, they were asking, well, where, where is the God of justice? Where, when is he going to come? He's coming. You better make sure that you're prepared for his coming. Because God is serious about purity. God is serious about cleansing his people. And he's not going to stop refining. He's not going to stop scrubbing until every blot is out. Who can endure the day of his coming? God's message is, I am going to clean up this mess, but you better hope you're not part of the mess when I get there. Because you might just end up at the wrong end of a cattle whip. Or worse, unquenchable fire. Jesus says, uh, or God says here in, in chapter 3 and verse 5 that he will bring swift judgment upon all sorcery and false religion, all adulterers, uh, all deceit, uh, all oppression, and all irreverence. And then in verse 6, notice, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God says all this about cleansing his people, coming in, in judgment and in purifying his people. And then he says, for I do not change. I, I think we have kind of a dual message here. Uh, in verse 6, he starts with four, which points us backward to what he's just said. God doesn't change, and so we're going to have to change or we're going to be judged. But it also points forward. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The unchangeable character of God can either be a message of, of comfort and blessing to us. God doesn't change. He's going to continue to be merciful and long-suffering in our sins. But the unchangeable character of God can also be a message of judgment. God is not going to change to accommodate our sins. If we're going to be in fellowship with God, we're the ones who are going to have to change. And so the question that we need to ask is, are we ready for his coming? God has given us the standard. He's given us the means of purification. And he is coming again. We better make sure that we're not part of the mess when he gets here. Uh, just like a, a child who's been told that they need to, to clean their room before dad gets home. You better make sure that you have that done before that door opens. In the same way, we need to make sure that we are allowing God to do his work within us, to purify us, um, before that fire turns into a fire of judgment, as we will see later on in chapter 4. So God is going to, to clean up this mess, but unfortunately, Israel has often consistently found themselves on the negative side of God's unchangeable character. And God urges them to, uh, to instead of trying his patience, to try the depths of his love. In verse 7, we read, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes that have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And so despite God's mercy, the children of Israel have been unwilling to change, have stubbornly uh, remained in their sins. But God's message here in verse 7 is, Return to me and I will return to you. I, I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Return to me, and I will return to you. God's extending his invitation. God is paving a, a pathway for us to come back to him. God is, is parting the seas, is opening the gates, if you will, for us to return to him. And yet, if we want him to come to us, if we want to have fellowship with him, it, we must first take the step and return to him. He's opened the pathway. He's accomplished salvation for us, but he's put the ball in our court. Return to me and I will return to you. Think about the story of the prodigal son for a moment. In Luke chapter 15, remember we read this parable about this son who takes his father's inheritance early, goes out and spends it on all type of uh, worthless living, wastes all of his father's money and immorality. And yet the story is intended to give us a message of God's grace, God's mercy, in context of Luke 15, we're, we're talking about Jesus reaching out to the sinners and the tax collector. 
But I want you to notice something about this story. Here in Luke 15, we read, So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. When we read this parable, we are intended to see the great mercy and compassion of God. That God is eager to accept us back, to reach out, that we see the father running out to his son. But what do you see first? See, the son comes to his senses. He gets up and he comes to his father. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. What we don't see the father doing is sending one of his servants out to follow around his son and his immoral lifestyle to, to make sure that he is always taken care of, to continue to send money to him and facilitate his immorality. We don't see that. But we see the father waiting day in and day out for his son to return. And when there's the slightest sign that his son is coming back, we see the father getting up and running out to him. The father is ready to welcome him back despite his rebellion with open arms. But if we want God to return to us, we need to return to him. God's put the ball in our court. God's opened the door, but we have to walk through it. God wants to be reconciled to us. He passionately wants to be reconciled to us. But we must repent and return to him. And yet Israel continues to talk back here in verse 7. They say, how shall we return? And in the context here, this is not a genuine inquiry, but an arrogant challenging of God's call to repentance. They're basically saying, well, how are we supposed to re return? What have we done wrong? In what way do we need to return? God tells them in verse 8 and 9, he says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. What is it that they needed to correct? Well, God had already talked about this, and how they weren't giving him the reverence that was rightfully his in their service and worship to him. God basically says, I'll spell it out for you. Your half-hearted worship is robbing me of what is rightfully mine. I'm afraid sometimes when we think about worship, when we think about service to God, when we think about uh, giving to support the, the work of the Lord's church, we, we might fall into a mindset that, that this is somehow commendable, that this is somehow a, a gift that I am giving to God. Really, not to give myself to the Lord, is robbing him of what is already rightfully his. It's not that I am somehow giving God a, a gift out of the goodness of my heart. No, I, I'm giving God what he rightly deserves. First Chronicles chapter 29, we read about David when he prepared this, this great offering in preparation for the temple, all this, this gold and silver and precious uh, metals, prepared to build this house for the Lord. But notice what David recognizes here in 1 Chronicles 29, starting at verse 14. David says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? 
For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Later on in verse 16, he says, O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. Even with the magnitude of, of David's offering here to build the Lord a house, to build this temple, this place of worship for the Lord, David recognizes, I, I'm not giving you a single thing that wasn't yours to begin with. It's not that David was bringing this great offering that was commendable. He was just returning God's stuff. He's basically saying, God, thank you for letting us borrow this. We're going to give it back to you now. In Luke chapter 17, we see the same principle in our service to the Lord. If you'd like to turn your Bibles over there, we will have a portion of the scripture on the screen. But in Luke chapter 17, we'll start reading in verse 7. And here Jesus says, in verse 7, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the servant because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves we have done only that which we ought to have done. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's what our service to the Lord is. It's not some great commendable gift that we're, we're bringing to him. No, we're, we're just returning God's stuff. Think about this in the context of our passage in Malachi. Um, you know, the, the homeowner doesn't thank the thief for, for returning the things that he stole, right? <laughs> or, or, or maybe more consistent with, with uh, God's gifts to us here, that the bank doesn't thank the borrower for making the payment on the things that he owed, does he? No. God deserved it. God, God owns it. God, all of this is on loan from the Lord. Anything that we give him of our time, of our energy, of our possessions, it was his already. And when we don't give God what he deserves, brethren, we are robbing God. God deserves every breath that I take. God deserves every beat of my heart. God created me and he created me for his glory and his service. We need to recognize the, the moral obligation that we have to serve God. And God doesn't just want us to serve him out of obligation. No, God wants to serve him, us to serve him out of love. But we need to recognize within that that God deserves our all. And anything less than our all is robbery. Yet look in verse 10 through 12 at what God is prepared to do for them. Even though rightfully they are just a slave in God's service. Look at God's willingness to serve and to bless them. In Malachi 3, read with me in verse 10 through 12. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. 
All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. We'll see later on in verse 15 that they were testing God in their disobedience. They were testing his, his patience. And yet God says, test me now in this. Give me the service that I deserve. Give your all to me. And just wait to see how I'm going to bless you. Brethren, God wants to bless us. And he wants to bless us abundantly. The full blessings of the Christian life are only available to those who give God the full devotion that he deserves. We sing a song sometime, Trust and Obey. And I believe it's the, the third verse of that song. Uh, we sing, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. If we want the true blessings of, of being God's child, of living the Christian life, we can't be halfway about it, brethren. We need to be all in. And certainly God doesn't want us to serve him simply because of what we get out of it. That's part of the message of the book of Job. Uh, Satan's challenge against Job was, does Job serve God for nothing? Job's just serving you because what of your, what you're giving him. God doesn't want service just because of his blessings. He wants us to seek him, not just seek something from him. And yet God certainly does want to bless us. God wants us to taste his grace. He wants us to bask in his love. He wants us to overflow in thankfulness for the peace and the joy and the hope and the love that he provides to us. And so God's message to these people, certainly he, he wants them to, to serve him, as we see earlier in the book, because of who he is, because of the reverence that he deserves. But he tells them, try it out. Give me your all. Lay it all on the altar and see if I won't bless you abundantly. God wants to bless us. But there is only one path to those blessings. Full surrender. Taking up our cross and following him. And in the context here, it doesn't look too promising for Israel. In verse 13... God continues, he says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Israel basically says, well, what, what have we spoken against you, is the first thing they say. And if we've read through the book, our response should basically be, are, are you serious? When have you not spoken against God? At every turn, you're speaking against God. But here, they say, it is vain to serve God. We, we've tried that. We, we've mourned. We've, we've walked before the Lord, and it it didn't work. It, it, just, it wasn't for us. Brethren, is that our attitude sometimes in our service to the Lord? We, we've tried serving God. I've tried reading my Bible. I've tried praying. I've tried going to church, but it just really didn't do it for me. 
often the reason we aren't getting a whole lot out of church or out of reading our Bibles is because we're not putting a whole lot into it. Or at least what we are putting into it is motivated by self-serving motives. Think back to our our servant illustration uh, in Luke 17. Can, Can you imagine the servant coming up to the master and saying, you know, I've tried this whole servant thing, and it's, it's just really not working for me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really enjoying it that much. I think I'm just going to go. That's not the way it works. Can, can you imagine you doing that with your employer? You said, you know, I, I, I've tried getting up and going to work, but I, I just don't really enjoy that lifestyle, so I'm, I'm going to leave. Uh, here's my address if you want to send me the paycheck. You know, or... or uh, you know, I've tried paying my taxes, but I'm just not that fulfilled by that. And so I'm, I'm, I, I really don't think I'll do that anymore. No. No way. You, you, when we recognize who God is, this is the creator of the universe, the one who has given us life, my service to him isn't just about what it does for me. Now, God wants to bless us, and he makes that very clear. God wants to bless us abundantly. He wants to give us peace and hope and joy. But he wants us to serve him because of who he is. And here, the the people in the days of Malachi were saying, well, we've tried that. And it's it's vain to serve God. It's just not doing much for us. God says, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it from the right heart, for the right reasons. And you're certainly not giving me the full reverence that I deserve. Brother, if we want the blessings that God truly provides, we need to be willing to lay all on the altar before him. And I think when we tend towards this attitude that we're talking about, we we need to ask ourselves, what am I seeking? Am I seeking some feeling, some feeling of being spiritually fulfilled? Or am I seeking God? himself. Matthew 6 and verse 33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The fulfillment that God provides for us, the watch and care over us that he provides is not what we are to seek within itself. If we are, then then we're doing it wrong. And we need to seek God himself because of who he is, because of his character, because of his glory and his power. And he'll take care of the rest. He's a benevolent father. He wants to bless us. But as we look back to the book of Malachi, the the final message in this book is that God is getting ready to turn over a new page. The question is, will we be on it? After reading through this entire book and seeing time and time and time again the people of Israel, this rebellious child, talking back to God, finally, in chapter 3 and verse 16, we see the faithful speaking. Verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord, and who esteem his name. Although reading through the book of Malachi, we might have thought that every single person in Israel will have this rebellious attitude against God, we we find out that's not everybody. There are those who fear the Lord, who have this proper reverence for God. 
And instead of talking back, we see them speaking to one another, uh, evidently in a way that is honoring to God, encouraging, building up one another. And what we see is that God writes a book of remembrance for them. Not a book of rebuke like Malachi, but a book of commemoration of their faithfulness, of their honor to God in worship. And just as God's message earlier was, return to me and I will return to you, I think we see in this section that God gives attention listens to and remembers those who give attention to, listen to, and remember him. Later on in chapter 4 and verse 4, he'll instruct them to remember his law. Those who remember God, God remembers. And making that statement, I, I think we need to recognize God is omniscient. God sees all. God hears all. God knows all. And God is all loving. God loves all. And so when we, when we say that God gives attention to or watches over those who remember him, we're, we're not saying that somehow our sins uh, set a limit on God's omniscience, that, that he somehow just doesn't see us or, or that he is not aware of our prayers. But when the Bible talks about God giving attention to I think we see there's a certain measure of God's watch and care, his presence with his people, a reconciled fellowship with him that only those who fully submit themselves to God's grace are able to receive. So when we say that God doesn't hear the prayer of the sinner, it's not that he just is not aware of it. No, but God gives his attention, listens to in, in a, an attentive and loving sense to those who are willing to submit themselves and, and turn to him. And in verse 7, we see further that, that promise that he has for these people. He says, They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Here, they're going to be God's treasure, God's possession. He's going to treat them as a child who cares for, uh, a father who cares for his child. That is the, the hope that we have, that we can be in God's presence, that we can have a, a relationship of restored fellowship with him. And as we get into the last chapter of Malachi, we return to the idea of God's coming. He talked about this at the beginning of chapter 3, coming as a refiner's fire, as a fuller's soap. And we see him coming in fire once again in chapter 4 and verse 1, and yet now it's a fire not of refining or of purifying, but a fire of judgment. He says in verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Brethren, if we're not willing to respond to the refining fire of God's word, then we will experience the consuming fire of his judgment. And yet in verse 2 and 3, we see the other side of that. He says, but for you who fear my name, 
The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Once all wickedness has, has burned away, once all the wickedness and evil of this world is but ashes, there will be a new dawn of healing, of hope, of restoration for God's people, those who fear him. We, we've seen throughout Malachi this theme of reverence in God. And so God is coming, but the question is, what side of his judgment are we going to be on? God is preparing a day. We see in verse 17, he is preparing his own possessions. We see in verse 3, he is preparing this day. The question is, are you and I prepared? And in the last three verses of Malachi, we're told two ways that we need to be prepared for this coming. And it's interesting, these two ways are um, given to us through Moses and Elijah. In verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I am commanding him and Horeb for all Israel. Obviously, here, this has reference to the, the Jews under the old covenant, but the same principles apply for us. If we want to be prepared for God's coming, what do we need to remember? If we want him to remember us, we need to remember his law, his word. We need to have such a reverence for him that causes us to pour over his word and seeking to be obedient to his authority. And in verse 5 and 6, we see Elijah, the prophet here, looking forward to the, the coming of, of John the Baptist here, preparing the way for the Lord. And in verse 6, it says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Not only do they need to remember God's law and obedience to him, they need to restore the family relationships. Remember we talked about at the end of chapter 2, they're tearing the family apart. What do they need to do? They need to restore these family relationships. The father's hearts turn to their children in loving instruction. The children's hearts turn to their father in honor and obedience. This is ultimately what the book of Malachi is about. Reverent obedience to God and his word and worship to God and loving care and compassion for our fellow man. And is that not what the entire Bible is about? About reverent obedience to the God that we love? <coughs> and love to our fellow man, care and compassion for others. And so are we prepared for his coming today? What about you? What about me? Most of Malachi looks forward to the first coming of Jesus. And yet Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, we're no longer going to have an opportunity to be refined by this fire or washed by this fuller soap, when he comes again, that fire is going to be a fire of judgment. And yet, there is also the hope of a new dawn of healing and restoration for those who fully submit themselves to the Lord and are cleansed by his grace. So the time of refining, the time of washing is now. You know, it's, it's, it's not enjoyable. Going through the, the, the crucible of melting heat 
having us refined, that's not a very enjoyable thing. Having us uh, scrubbed clean might cause some friction, might cause some, some difficulty, some trial for us. But by God's grace, we can come through that pure and clean and holy, sinless by the power and the mercy of God. Are you willing to let God cleanse you? Are you willing to let God transform your life? Return to him and he will return to you. If you recognize today that you're not serving the Lord, that you're not in the type of relationship that you need to be, that that you have strayed from giving God what he rightly deserves in your life, by God's grace, you can return to him. And he is waiting, ready to, to run to you with open arms to receive you back. By God's grace, if you're willing to commit your life to him, you can bury the old man of sin in baptism. And by the power of the resurrection, you can be raised to walk in newness of life, to have a hope of eternity in God's presence. Do you have that hope today? If not, you can, if you're willing to change. If anybody is subject to the Lord's invitation needs to make some public change today, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as we sing.